Welcome to Gears Action Growth, shifting business culture one conversation at a time. My name is Christy Mori, and I usually join Dr. Josephine Palermo, whose superpower is to transform organizations team by team. But this week, we have a special treat. Dr. Josephine Palermo will be discussing doubt and uncertainty for people in your business with community psychologist, Dr. Ian Butterworth. Hope you get value from it. Hey, Ian. Good morning. Good morning to you, too. It's so lovely to have you, uh, just have you here and have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. So today I'm talking to Dr. Ian Butterworth, who is a fabulous human being and also one of the best people I know. And we've known each other for a long time and I call him a fratello. And um, so, Ian, I, I won't do you justice by introducing you. So maybe over to you. Could you just tell people who you are and maybe, you know, kind of in terms of what your work is, what your focus is. Wow. Um, being given a microphone, it just sort of, I go into monologue mode and I'll try and I'll stop about you. Myself. I'll stop yeah, you. <laughs> you're going to need to. Yeah. Um, well, I'm trained in community psychology, um, which is all about helping fish find out they're wet. It's, 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 it's an approach that says you really can't, help people resolve life issues unless you look at the environment that surrounds them, historical, social, environmental, political. Um, and it's very much the sociological end of psychology, I guess. Um, and I've been working in that space for a long time, but primarily in public health. And I found my way into public health during my PhD, uh, which was looking at environmental adult education. Uh, and I've ended up working around the United Nations uh, Sustainable Development Goals, this notion of livability, um, the notion that to help people stay well and healthy, you need to create the environmental conditions that really address that. So I do a lot of work with local councils around their municipal public health and wellbeing plans. Um, I do a lot of work around healthy urban planning and um, Melbourne, Victoria has a 30-year plan called Plan Melbourne, and I helped to write some of that around livable neighbourhoods. So it's really trying to embed uh, a notion of healthy environment into areas that might not typically look at the urban form as being important. That's wonderful. And, Ian, I know that a lot of people probably don't really know that there is this kind of category of community psychology because, and I know a lot of people are really interested in psychology, but firstly they 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 think of it as, as you know, one-on-one -on -one sort of, you know, health or individual health or even maybe forensic psychology because, you know, shows like CSI kind of popularise that. Uh, and then some of them might know about organisational psychology, but community psychology, it's really such an important part of, um, uh, you know, it's, part, it's an important field. And as, as like you've been saying, you, you deal with some of the big issues. You deal with the, the things in our environment that really are important for our well-being as groups of people, as cities, as nations, as, as the planet in a way. So, so, so Ian, just, just before we go on, so community psychology, if people wanted to kind of find out more about that, where would they go? Because it's it's not something that many oh, people know just, about. Just Google the term. There's a lot of material online. Okay. 
uh, the Society for Community Research and Action in the United States, which is a, a division of the American Psychological Association, has a lot of material on that. Um, it, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there. And I guess in terms of organisational dynamics, you know, it's I guess the premise of community psych is if one person is struggling, for example, with being unemployed and the unemployment rate is almost zero in that community, then that would be framed as a personal issue. But if the unemployment rate is 10% and 10% of the entire society is struggling to find work, then it's not, it's no longer a personal no. issue. It's a, it's a social problem. Yes. And I guess the community psychology would look at it's the whole of the, the whole community is is the subject of analysis or discussion, if you like. So it's 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 individuals, but in their social context. Um, and the things that we look at are so psychological support, advocacy, self-help organizations, social movements, community organizing, resilience, um, you know, environmental change, history, politics, um, social structure. They're very important. Fantastic. Thanks, Ian. And I know you and I have kind of done some work together because there's problems that I'm always really motivated to, to address as well. So because because that systems perspective, that community perspective is really important. Um, so, Ian, what we're here today, and, and I think we could talk about lots of things, of course, but what I'm, what I'm uh, wanting to talk about is doubt and uncertainty because I know you've been doing some work in that area and it's such an important sort of pair of concepts, particularly when we're all really struggling with so much uncertainty. And, you know, like, for example, yes, today is one of the first days in Melbourne, for example, that we've come back uh, into somewhat of uh, restrictions around um, addressing COVID-19 when we thought that we were sort of over that hump. So we're back in a place of uncertainty again. And so I think that we all struggle with this and we all have different responses. Um, but I know that you've, you're, you've been focusing a lot of your work on that. Um, so how did, you, how did that become? How did doubt and uncertainty become a focus of your work? Well, I was fortunate to, to do a, a graduate diploma um, in organisational psychology back in the late 80s. And one of the seminal documents that I discovered was a little booklet called, um, it was like a diagnostic manual for organisational and community change. I know that's not the right title, but it was created by Tim Dalmau and Bob Dick, two really awesome organisational development and change consultants uh, from Queensland, I think. And that, that little book's been my talisman for the last 30 years. I've used it all the time. Um, for me, it's like I don't need any other tools because I think it just captures everything so well. It's, it's talking about how organisations have superficial level of the conscious. It's like people, we, we, what we think, the, the, who we think we are is probably you know, 5% the conscious self and 95% the unconscious yes. self. And yeah. the organisations are the same. Um, organisations have a psyche. Organisations have um, the superficial level of operations and procedures and, and um, processes. But organisations also have personalities and mythology and the unconscious life. And it's the unconscious stuff that really 
drives so much of what happens in an organisation. Um, and that's where the doubt sits, I guess. Well, the doubt can sit at different levels, but um, actually having this discussion with you reminds me of, you know, when you walk into a place and you get a sense of the atmosphere of a place just by the lighting and people's body language and whether there's plants or not and how desks are arranged and the hut and whether there's a productive convivial harm or where there's a sort of deathly silence yeah. um, or where there's a cacophony of open plan hell, which is sort of <laughs> how a lot of things are these days. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think a, a good way to get the mood of a place is to walk into the kitchen area or the if there even is a kitchen. And, again, you know, you and I have both worked in a university where all of the meeting areas were removed to put in cubicles for staff. So yeah. th those, those are important signposts about attitudes and values. And often you see the people will leave snarky messages above the sink saying, you know, the, the dish fairy isn't working today, do it yourself. Or, and I remember one place uh, there was a sign that said the beatings will continue until morale improves. You know, it's one of those <laughs> memes. Yeah. But the, those are signposts about the culture of a place and they could be tapping into people's doubts about the organisation. Um, yep. So even the most successful organisation in the world, even the one that's working absolutely brilliantly, there will be doubts that people hold about it. But they can be very superficial. They're just about, oh, you know, that, that memo said we need to improve our accounting practices. Yeah, we need to do that because blah, blah, blah. Um, so those are very superficial things, just about policies and procedures and tactics. But when you start to go deeper into levels of doubt, you're going from what's called operational doubt, which is the first level of doubt about operations, but you're going to this level of ideological doubt, which is when people start to have doubts about the rational purpose and direction of the organisation. And that's where you need to start thinking about your aims. Why are we here? Mm. What are we doing? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's like there's no point getting on an aeroplane and wondering whether you're seated on an aisle or a window if you're not even sure where you're meant to be flying. Yeah. You know? um, and then even deeper is where you start, there starts to be a disintegration of what Dalmau and Dick called into, uh, a disintegration of meaning and plausibility. And that's what they call ethical doubt. And that's like, well, why are we here? Um, mm. Who are you? What, what the hell am I doing in this place? Yes. Um, and then when you get into absolute doubt, that's, that's where the place just falls apart and people leave. Um, and I think there are, there are tools that this book, little booklet had, which was so helpful. I've been using it ever since, whether I've been working with um, self-help organisations, um, government teams, steering committees. Mm -hmm. I've just used it with um, a steering group made up of all people from all different sectors supporting a local government to implement their um, municipal public health and wellbeing plan. And um, this is an amazing program steering group with real commitment. What we found is that even after five years, even through COVID, mm -hmm. even after extraordinary change, you know, climate change, population growth, urban development, et cetera, et cetera, you know, 20 people volunteered an hour and a half of their time to 
meet with me and talk about their experience, which for me was an amazing sign anyway. We have their and, commitment. Yeah, and they the, the, the strong message was um, it was mostly at the level of, of operations um, and people tended to respond mostly to this statement. We're doing a worthwhile job and doing it reasonably well, but our real aims are sometimes frustrated because we might go around dealing with them the wrong way. So it was about tightening up and doing some yeah. fine tuning. But if if you were going into the level of ideological doubt, they might have been responding to question uh, a statement such as, we know what we're trying to accomplish, but if we want to achieve it, though, we're going to have to reorder our priorities and perhaps substantially. Mm. Or we have a fair idea of what we're trying to accomplish, but we have very little idea of how to go about it. Yeah. So those are very, you know, quite more serious doubts. But if they'd said things like, we often do things very badly, but that doesn't matter because what we're doing is usually futile anyway, you know, that's, that's a Exactly. There's no consequence there to, to failing because it doesn't matter anyway. So, yeah. The bleakest one, the bleakest response they could have said was, system, what system? You're <laughs> just an accidental collection of individuals waiting for an opportunity to leave. Um, you know, and I guess some of us have had those experiences, yeah. whether it's a group that we've joined or um, uh, that's probably how the members of ABBA felt shortly before they broke up. Oh, <laughs> poor ABBA. Actually, wouldn't it be interesting <laughs> to do an analysis of ABBA's doubts and uncertainties? And Ian, that's, yes. your next, that's your next job. My next career move. That's right. <laughs> but uh, So what happens if you don't address doubt and uncertainty? So, you, you know, so this is obviously a way of uncovering it, but. What, what happens if you do nothing? Well, I guess you can use family therapy systems analysis too. You know, families might have a wicked secret that no one wants to address. Yeah. And so you paper over the cracks and you put on a bright face. Mm -mm. Um, I mean, I, I had to get out of working in bureaucratic situations eventually because I really got tired of being told to be nimble and agile through yet another restructure, yes. through yet another rebranding, through yet another organisational restructure and yet another passing parade of mm. administrators coming through. For me, that, for me personally, that was a level of uh, ideological doubt, I guess, or yeah. even for me even perhaps deeper into ethical doubt. Like, it's like, why am I here when yes. I'm being told to attend yet another team building session or yet another briefing from a secretary yeah. who's you know in their early 40s dare I say and probably good at managing but ne doesn't necessarily have symbolic leadership and content knowledge it gives me a sense that this organization is being led by someone who deserves to be there mm. or has the capability to be there and mm. provide symbolic um ethical leadership about purpose and and vision if you know what I mean so so Ian does that mean so that so in your in your kind of case it's you just leave the organization but I imagine you you also might have if you don't address this you also just might have very lots of people who are just disengaged they're still there but they're not really there so you're not optimizing the, their skill and knowledge and you know energy because they've checked out is that is that kind of you know I'm in sure. your experience? I mean, yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, yeah. in the end, I took a massive financial hit from leaving that uh, messy environment, but it did offer me um, income that was reliable. So, I mean, yeah. if, I had, if I had dependents or if I had, I was fortunate to have, you know, I'm fortunate to have a partner and between the two of us we managed to get by. But, yeah. I mean, if you're investing 30% or more of your income into housing That's or... Right. Like a lot of you know, people are. Mm. You, you don't have those choices. That's right. Um, and if you're in places like the US, which have very limited sick leave or health cover or, you know, the, you you stick it out. Yes. But, but it does mean that the organisation ends up shooting itself in the foot, um, let alone in the face, Mm-mm. because you're wasting your most valuable asset, which is exactly. your people. That's right. That's right. There's, there's, and, you can never achieve to the greatness that that your organisational vision wants you to achieve if you have that kind of uh, culture and that environment for people. Yeah, totally get it. Then I I think what you end up having is passive resistance. You have unproductive teams, but you also have mental health struggles. You have people that are watching their life go by. They're investing eight, nine, ten hours of their day in something that they find meaningless or possibly distressing. Mm-mm. And I think that's a catastrophic waste of human capital. But it's also it's also a catastrophic uh, problem in terms of societal levels of mental health distress. Mm-mm. And look how widespread depression is in the Western world. And, I mean, when the sociologists and Marxists, when Karl Marx was looking at organisational dysfunction and anomie, he was looking at people that were involved in bureaucratic tasks that held no meaning for them. Yes, yes. Uh, mm. I, ha- I have some degree of empathy for where, you know, sociologically critical theories come from. You can see where that comes The from. outcome of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I think also um, because we're, we've moved into, you know, from Marx to now, we've moved into a much more of a, kind of proliferation of more sort of the knowledge economy and, and sort of professional kind of jobs in a way. And so so that meaning is different, but it's still the same concept. You you uh, And we spend so much of our, our time at work. And to your point, it, it, it not everyone has the opportunity to leave if they don't find the environment that's right for them. So it's really a responsibility of leadership to ensure that that environment is conducive to people really living their best lives. I'm so passionate about that because I just figure, you know, we have one life and, you know, every moment is precious and collectively we can do something about it. So, so but Ian, I think why a lot of organisations don't lean into that is because they either don't know how or they think it's really hard. So, so um, you know, have you, in your experience of using that concept of kind of really leaning into doubt and uncertainty, can you do harm by doing that as well? Um, harm to whom? I guess it depends what commitments do you have before you start uncovering that stuff? What commitments are there by the people that hire you to actually do something meaningful with the, with the findings? Um which in itself can be a marker of doubt. It's one of those. You can produce that, right? Yeah. If you if yeah. you sort of if, if you unearth this stuff and then do nothing with it, absolutely, you make things worse. Mm. Um, or it, yeah, and so people, if 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 people throughout the work 
with throughout the work setting, throughout the organization, already have doubts that by sharing the truth, they will be listened to, you may well end up with uh, a consulting brief that's kind of already compromised. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess it's the engagement process that's so important. And I guess people need to be assured and promised. There needs to be a promise to staff that, you know, we will take this on board yeah. and we promised. So there need to be, I think there need to be structures put in place to make sure that the findings are implemented. And I think implementation has to be led by people throughout the organisation. Um, so there almost has to be a sense of letting go or trust or shared decision-making put mm-hmm. in place even before it happens. Um, so it's one of those chicken and egg things. But yeah. I think, again, an organisation that's not really willing to work with their staff to uncover doubt and find ways to address it, it's kind of a signpost for me that they're not really willing to change. Mm -hmm. And so even the quality of engagement with the consultant or with the change agent, even in and of itself, is kind of a signpost to me about where that organisation is at in terms of the management um, or the owners of that operation or you know, the executive group or whatever. Yeah. Um, I I love, you know why I love this, Ian? Because a lot of the work that, you know, we do as kind of organisational consultants is around building strengths and making organisations stronger. And I do a lot of work in making culture stronger. But where I also see that the choice point is around, is that organisation also willing to address the stuff that's hard, the stuff that isn't as nice, you know, and the the real feedback that they're getting that people are not perhaps uh, where they they think they they should be in terms of their happiness, in terms of their level of certainty, and you know, um, and and in terms of their engagement. So I think that this is actually, you know, I I really like strength based approaches, but they're there's sometimes, you know, with you do need to do both. You do need to look at what is underneath because otherwise you just, it's like just putting new, new fresh paint on. So you yes, do exactly. need to go deeper. And we often do that by using assessment tools because people find it difficult, right, to sort of say some of this stuff, you know, in a forum. Or it's, it's hard. There's a risk, especially, you know, yeah. in a low trust environment or even a medium trust environment. There's a risk. I like your notion of putting fresh paint on something I guess putting fresh paint on rotting wood isn't yeah. a good idea I mean, you've got to scrape off the rot and then yeah. re- resurface it just going back to my current local government example I mean yeah. one thing I really admire about uh, the council is that they've been using this framework called collective impact uh, which is a repackaging of community development if you like or the the intersectoral governance structures that, for example, the Healthy Cities approach uses for the World Health Organization. And that is wicked problems need a a complex team of stakeholders put together that have a stake in the outcome and have insights that other people throughout the social system may not have. Mm. Um, And, you know, you can use that across an organization as well as across um, a community system. But what I really valued about this was the, the, the council was taking on the role of what's called the backbone organisation, but the other conditions for collective impact are a shared sense of purpose, mm-hmm. a shared 
measuring system, continuous communication, uh, and coming up with a whole system of activity that's complementary. So the different partners take on different roles based on their strengths or what their brief mm -hmm. is, what their mission statement is, but they work together. And council brought me on board to, they threw open the doors and said, let's find out how well this is going. Yeah. And the fact was they were willing to find out. And yes. what, what they found was that, you know, the steering group members did want to participate. They did want to share their mm. thoughts. And that's because they were committed. And the final observations from this evaluation were quotes such as, there's a deep reserve of goodwill towards this municipal plan and the work of the council. Mm -hmm. you know, let's celebrate the work of this council. Yes. Get the structure right. There is so much goodwill. Yeah. Um, our steering group has wonderful human capital and talented people. Let's create real learning and opportunities across our steering group. Those are almost direct quotes from what I took from the interviews. Yeah. So, but people also said, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, we've got work to do. There are things that could be mm -hmm. better, but what people could see was and what they respected was that council was willing to be vulnerable. Yes. Learn. They were willing to um, put themselves up for scrutiny. Um, and that in itself generates trust, you know, and it generates, exactly. it helps to minimise. It, it means that the doubt people are willing to share doubts because they know that they're going to be heard. Um, and, you know, you can apply that example across an organisation too. Mm -mm, absolutely. And, you know, this is a really lovely tie in there to uh, this kind of rise of the importance of vulnerability in, in leadership to really engender in, in trust in organisations and a tr high trust culture. So absolutely. It's about, it's about having the courage in a way as an organisation, as a leadership team to do it. Ian, we've run out of time. I think you have to come back and talk to me about other topics. Oh, Josie. <laughs> damn, damn, I know, I know. But before we go, um, what I know that your your garden is always looking beautiful. Have you got some tips right now for me in my in my terrace garden? What should I be planting? I've got some bulbs. Tell me. Ooh, have you garden got some bulbs? Tips. I have got I have got some bulbs. Should I plant the bulbs now? Oh, yes, they should okay. be in the ground. I know, they're not in the ground yet. <laughs> what sort of bulbs are they? Tulips yeah. and flowers. Is it too late? Oh, no, no, it's just the right time. Put them okay. in. All right, I'll put them in. Just put Tulips, them in. Tulips, daffodils, put them All in right. pots. Okay, great. Thank I've you, I've just Ian. planted 350. Oh! <laughs> oh but we're not competing, are we? I've got about 11. <laughs> but one is... Well, even one is beautiful. Even one. Oh, and then they'll 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 grow in the spring, right? So they'll be dormant over winter and grow in the spring. That's right. Okay. Yes. And then we can compare. All right. But yeah, uh, for anybody who um, doesn't know what we're talking about, Ian has the most amazing garden in his gorgeous house uh, in the country, and it's a very uh, he uses a lot of heritage seeds, so very interesting and very interesting veggies that come out of there and fruits. So. Um, and I'm parents. enjoying your taramand. Taramand? Taramand? Oh, the fermented green jalapeno Tex-Mex sauce. Fantastic. Great with fish and chicken. Amazing. Yes. Thank you, Ian. I'll, I'll finish some soon and get some more. <laughs> All right. Well, we, I know you have to go. So 
Um, so we'll, um, so thank you so much, Ian, and we'll put some um, references in the show notes for people who want to kind of, you know, who, who want to go and um, look at some Fantastic. of this in more detail. So yeah. thank you so much. Pleasure.